Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut General Assembly's legislative session ends next week. What, if anything, has been accomplished by lawmakers to address the challenges of funding education equitably? Coming up, we'll hear from the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education, or CABE. Also, what attracts people to teach? We'll ask Dr. Richard Schwab, a UConn professor who led a national commission on the future of teaching. And we'll also hear from a former principal who worked within Hartford Public Schools about the challenges to keep teachers in their jobs. First, teachers in several states have been striking for better pay, from West Virginia to Oklahoma, and now Arizona. I know you all missed your students as much as I missed mine. So you tell them how much you missed them, and you hug them enough to let them know that you were here for them. That's kindergarten teacher Kelly Fisher speaking with protesters yesterday in a video posted to Twitter by AZ Central. Now, why have four states seen teacher strikes this year? For more, joining our conversation is Michelle Hackman, education policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we understand that Arizona teachers are heading back to the classroom today. Can you tell us what led uh, Arizona teachers to strike in the first place and how long that strike lasted? Sure. So so Arizona strike, it was the third state to go on something akin to a statewide strike. And, and the factors that led to that were pretty similar as in West Virginia and Oklahoma, the first two states we saw. You know, um, education funding had fallen 10% since the Great Recession in 2008, adjusted for inflation. And so if you look at the state's revenue, I mean, the state is doing a lot better. It's bringing in a lot more money. But education funding just hasn't recovered. And that has just really caused teachers to reach this boiling point of, you know, they have such low pay and just don't have enough money for really basic supplies. Um, And so this week, we saw teachers go on strike last Thursday, they were out of the classroom five days until they got pretty much precisely what they asked for a 20% raise. Now, one of those teachers is joining us by phone uh, from Arizona, Adam Risch, a band teacher at Mountain View High School in Mesa, Arizona. Adam, welcome to the show. Well, I thank you for having me. So uh, good news that you're headed back to the classroom for both teachers and students. Why did you participate in the strike? Um, well, you know, it's one of those things that this this grassroots movement took over uh, just under 60 days or about 60 days ago. Um, and, you know, seeing what was happening in other states like West Virginia and Oklahoma and, and just seeing the, the positive results that uh, either uh, were happening in the short term but were also, I think, taking effect long term in some of those states, I think, encouraged us to, uh, to really rally together. Um, and I think one of the, the best parts of the whole thing is that it really ended up being a nonpartisan grassroots, you know, we're all in this together. There were people that were for the strike. There were people that were for or against the strike. But when it, when the vote came down, even those that 
voted not to walk out were still there when we marched uh, last week, Thursday, and it was an incredible experience. We got a lot of good information out there to parents and community members, and I I think it was it was just it was incredible. It was powerful. Now, Adam, um, as Michelle mentioned, so uh, the teachers will be getting, is it a 20% pay increase? Um, that remains to be seen. The The promise from our governor was 20% over three years. Um, I think this year, uh, the goal was supposed to be 9% for this year. And um, that's that's probably going to be more of um, up to the districts because that didn't include any of the um, you know, the special teachers such as, or in counselors and uh, special education or uh, support staff. And so uh, one of the things that we were striking for was also increase in pay for support staff. And actually, you know, the 20% was offered to us before we walked out. And the point of the walkout wasn't necessarily just for teacher pay. It it really was for education dollars across the board. We have classrooms that, uh, you know, have, you should see some of the pictures, just holes in the ceiling, uh, just the infrastructure of the whole state's um, schools is quite poor. And that's part of the budget that has been cut over the years as well. Uh, textbooks, you know, new computers, things like that. It's It was all education budget, or um all education funding. And, and honestly, if it would have been uh, just pay that we were looking for, sure, we would have said 20% sounds incredible. But that was really a small part of, of, the, uh, of what we were, were fighting for. It was, it was really for our students first. Without that uh, development, Adam, uh, has Arizona struggled to keep young teachers in this profession because of the challenges you mentioned in the classroom beyond just the pay? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what's going to happen probably in the next 10 years, and uh, it, it really looks like uh, a huge chunk of our, of our current teachers will probably be retiring in the next 10 years. And we really struggle with keeping teachers here past uh, one or two years. In fact, we had 1,200 teaching uh, positions open at the beginning of this year that were filled by substitutes, and by just a couple months into the school year, it was almost 2,000 uh, open positions because of teachers leaving that um, figured out that, oh man, I cannot handle the classroom, this is this is not for me, and and uh, it, we have a real crisis here, and, and really the budget that was passed was, I believe, only about 30% of what we were asking for, but it's going to have to continue to change if they really want to make an effect long term on keeping, keeping teachers here. And Adam, before we let you go, uh, you mentioned this uh, this activism uh, that has uh, been fueled again over the last few months in other states, including West Virginia. Where do you see that activism uh, going in your state of Arizona? Um, will teachers uh, remain engaged? Uh, I really believe they will. It's one of the neatest things about this whole experience has just been listening to some of my colleagues talk about um, things that they never knew before or people that they voted for that they said, I cannot believe I voted for this person. They are, you know, they are so anti-education. I, I didn't realize uh, what I was doing. And and really, like I said, it, it was so nonpartisan. It was, it was really encouraging, um, especially, 
given the the national climate. You know, I I know friends of mine that are Republicans and friends that are Democrats, and they were all on the same page thinking about the exact same uh, pro-education candidates for this upcoming election. And and really, uh, it all just came down to, you know, who was really listening to the teachers, who was taking time to meet with the teachers, and who was, you know, calling us communists and all kinds of other names. It really, it, it really was encouraging to see that uh, teachers were coming together and, and really uh, looking at the issues from, from that standpoint. Adam Risch is a band teacher at Mountain View High School in Mesa, Arizona. Adam, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Today we're looking at these movements uh, happening in states across the country where teachers are demanding uh, better pay, uh, where wages are low, but also more support in the classroom. With us on the phone is Michelle Hackman, education policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So, Michelle, we just heard a little bit from Adam um, and the context there in Arizona. Uh, We mentioned this movement has grown. Uh, We hear, and you mentioned that since the recession, a lot of the cuts have uh, fallen on uh, education hard, but now that the economy is improving, why haven't states uh, directed more of that money to education from what was cut back in '09? Well, um, we've seen these we've seen these protests happen in largely Republican states that tend to favor tax cuts. You know, in Oklahoma and Arizona, it's much harder to actually pass a tax increase than it takes to pass a tax cut. In Oklahoma, it takes literally three-fourths of the legislature to vote yes. So you can imagine how politically difficult that is. One other factor that I think is really interesting and important is we've really seen um, the power of labor unions decline in the last decade. You know, in most of these states, in Oklahoma and West Virginia, um, teachers actually don't even have the right to collectively bargain for their salaries. And so something that happens when they can't do that is that their their labor unions get weaker and they have to resort to something like a strike. And Michelle, that's a good point that you mentioned. Uh, again, uh, these, uh, these states were seeing these uh, strikes and protests, um, Republican-led legislature, the uh, idea that they don't want to be raising uh, taxes. So, and when we look at what happened in West Virginia, which was the catalyst, I believe, mm-hmm. um, how are they able to then uh, get this, uh, this pay raise after a nine-day walkout, the first tax increase in 28 years, I understand, to boost teacher pay there in West Virginia? That was in in Oklahoma was the first tax increase in 28 years, but it's still remarkable. Um, You know, I think the the other factor, I mean, once a strike actually begins, it's really dramatic, right? You know, all the teachers are out of school, schools are shut, parents don't have anywhere to send their kids, often kids, you know, are depending on school for food. So it's something that's really noticeable and that politicians have an incentive to end as quickly as possible. Um, and, and, you know, obviously it's a really great way to grab attention. And what has there been a, a fear of backlash um, from parents and others in the community who, uh, while they're sympathetic to the fact that there are less resources in the classroom and the, the, the wages for teachers are low compared to other states? I mean, they still need to, to figure out what to do with their kids during the day. And that can be a, a struggle as well. Right. You know, Adam might have a better answer to that question than I do, but as far as I've seen, I spent some time particularly in Oklahoma. Um, You know, teachers are um, people who have very high levels of trust in our society, and so I think if they resort to a strike, I think there's, there's an understanding that 
things must be really dire for them to to take that step. And so far in the limited polling we've seen, you know, parents have been really supportive. The the population overall is very supportive. Mm And the role of social media in, uh, you know, gathering this message and uh, influencing other teachers in other states to go to their state capitals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that goes back to um, labor unions being weak. I think in a lot of these cases, we've seen the labor unions actually following the lead of teachers who are just creating these Facebook groups and, and sort of starting grassroots efforts on their own. And another thing that's really interesting to me is that, you know, people are asking, why now? Why not a year ago? Why not a year from now? And I think it partially has to do with the fact that, you know, teachers are seeing the success of other protest movements. You know, a lot of these teachers I talk to, they say the first protest they ever went to was the Women's March last year. And they've seen, you know, frankly, the success of the Parkland kids who really stood up and and started a nationwide movement. And I think people have said, you know, if they can, why can't we as well? Do you anticipate this movement spreading, Michelle? I understand teachers in North Carolina are now um, talking about taking a day where they can go and lobby their legislators. I think so. I mean, I think it's it's become a tactic that people realize really works. Um, Colorado also saw a few days of, of protests. I think next we'll see activity in North Carolina. I've heard teachers in Texas and Indiana also talking about similar tactics. But I mean, it's, it makes sense, right? If it's a tactic that works so well, it's kind of irresistible. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Michelle Hackman, education policy reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Michelle, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to talk about teacher compensation and benefits in Connecticut. They may be high, looking better uh, than in other states that we've just talked about, but cost of living is higher here, too. We wanted to know more about what draws people to want to become teachers and what leads them to leave the profession. We're going to talk with a former public schools administrator and hear from a professor and former dean of the Yukon School of Education. That's right after the break, and you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Have you taught? Are you currently a teacher? Uh, what do you want to see happen in terms of wages and also support in the classroom? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We heard why teachers in several states are stri- several states rather are striking for better pay. Teacher compensations and benefits vary from state to state. Now, here in Connecticut, what benefits attract people to become educators? Depending on the school district, pay and other compensation may be higher in the suburbs versus city districts. But teachers also deal with a variety of issues on the job that can make the job challenging, no matter the pay. Now, have you taught or currently teach? We want to hear from you. Eight six zero two. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining us on the phone now is Dr. Rich Schwab, Raymond Niag, Endowed Professor of Educational Leadership at UConn's Niag School of Education, also the former dean there, and also was a commissioner for the National Commission on Teaching and America's Future. Uh, Dr. Schwab, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. We were just learning a little bit about some of the challenges in states like West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, and what led them to protest for, for better pay and uh, more education funding uh, for their districts. Um, I understand that nationally teacher pay is down compared to where it was in the 90s. Uh, we hear often here in Connecticut funding and support in classrooms is a challenge depending on uh, what district we're talking about. Um, what are you hearing from the students who are entering uh, the Yukon School of education? What's leading them to want to become teachers? Well, let, let me start by saying I'm so excited about this movement that's bringing back attention to education because there is a great diversity of opportunities for students and teachers across this country. Pretty much depends on what town you live in, what state you live in, the opportunities that you have. But there's one key thing that I've learned over close to 40 years in this profession is that people don't go into the teaching profession for money. I mean, we need salaries that people can, um, that are drawn to, to help pay off forgivable loans that they've accumulated. They need basic human needs with salaries, which means they need to be paid a good salary. But other things that are really important, especially for new teachers, is what is the climate of the school that they're going into? Do they have effective administrators that engage teachers in decision-making and problem-solving? Is there a reasonable class size? Is there support for new pre-teachers like induction programs, like coaching? Is there support for teachers who do that and not just another add-on duty um, that teachers have to do uh, during the day? Are there opportunities for professional growth, real meaningful professional development that's job embedded, not just one shot every two months for half an hour or three hours where you sit and listen? These are just some of the things that we need. Now, uh, Rich, in your time at UConn, have you seen the number of students who are wanting to become teacher? Has, has that number started to decline at all? Not at all. Um, we, we've had a very rigorous uh, teacher education program. It's uh, front-end selective, we like to say, which uh, means that we screen people very carefully about their knowledge of their subject, about experiences with kids, about their ability to communicate. So because we have the reputation of a very strong program and pretty much high 90, 100% job placement rate and our people stay longer, um, we still have student demand. But I know talking, I was just at a conference not long ago, my colleagues across the country are not that fortunate. And there are, uh, there's a serious decline on those wanting to become teachers. Now, you mentioned that climate and support is just as important as pay. Um, when we hear about the educational disparities in the state of Connecticut, uh, we know that pay is better in certain districts, oftentimes in affluent towns, support staff, uh, less high-need students. Do you find that students are more attracted to those districts versus working in districts that have high needs and challenges in the classroom, lack of support in some neighborhood schools? I'm talking about in Hartford. Okay, so uh, this is something that drives me crazy, um, and it has driven me crazy over the years. We have students that have worked in places like Hartford um, that, that are totally committed to social justice and have wonderful kids and supportive administrators, and they want to go. But unlike other districts in the surrounding areas, it's not just salary, it's getting budgets in time that you can recruit these really talented people that have already been working in the Hartford schools and want to stay. You know, right now, teachers are worried about keeping their jobs in Hartford. So when our students go in there and they really love the place and they really want to be there, 
they they can't wait till August to find out if they have a job. Most many of our students are for, many are first generation, uh, particularly our students from of color. Um, they have student loans. They they need to take jobs. And other districts are here recruiting our teachers like they're Division One basketball players, which is great. And those are, those are schools that have you know got a solid budget in place. They can predict. Um, that's really key. Well, let's uh, bring another uh, voice into this conversation to help answer that question as well. Karen Lott uh, is a former principal of Milner School in Hartford, Connecticut, now executive director of the Women's League Child Development Center. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I saw you nodding when uh, Rich was talking about some of, of the challenges when it comes to even uh, teachers being able to know if they have a job with budgets coming down uh, so late. Talk about what you experienced at Milner. Yeah, that certainly is a great influence on teachers' decisions, whether or not to stay in a district like Hartford or to leave and go to somewhere else, um, most often to the surrounding suburbs. Um, and certainly when you approach that time of the year when budgets are put in, being put in place and there is a question mark about whether or not positions will be funded, um, or there's a lag in time and when you will know if those positions will be funded. Teachers definitely have that need for stability and predictability in their lives. And so they often will leave um, an uncertain situation in the city of Hartford, for example, to go to somewhere else where their budgets may be in place. And they're hiring teachers early in the season in May or June. Um, as opposed to an experience that I often had um, working in urban school districts is that you're often late in the season doing your hiring because you're waiting for that budget to be finalized. Uh, during your time as principal at Milner, I believe it was five years? Yes. How, how, how much of a struggle was it to uh, once you had teachers in place and they were getting the experience and they were um, you know, still really uh, interested in the profession and excited to come to work every day? Mm-hmm. How how difficult was it to retain those teachers in your district? Yeah, so teacher retention is certainly um, a major issue um, in urban districts and particularly in neighborhood schools like Milner. Um, and so what you would often find is teachers come in with a great amount of excitement. They've prepared. Uh, they've often known for much of their lives that they've wanted to be teachers. Um, and sometimes what they come in and face, the conditions, um, even though they are often great advocates and uh, have a great emphasis on social justice, some of the conditions that they face um, often makes them weary in time. Uh, And so the teacher turnover rate uh, was very high for me at Milner um, at one point in time. Um, Upwards of 65% of my teachers had zero to three years of teaching experience. So here you have a very young uh, population of teachers. in classrooms with students who have a great diversity of needs. Um, And so I think all teachers want to feel successful in what they do. They come into teaching because they want to make a difference. They want to change lives. Uh, And I think when they walk into conditions that they don't have control over um, and there's not that sense of support or maybe that climate in the school where they know that there are other colleagues and peers and administrators that are really supporting them, it really very quickly uh, wears them down and makes them start thinking about either leaving the profession or seeking to go somewhere else where maybe it's a little easier. 
Can you talk a little more specifically about the challenges that you're that you're addressing here when uh, teachers uh, come in and you know they've got a lesson plan and they're mm-hmm. excited to get the kids to learn the specific lessons and to meet certain standards, but mm-hmm. there's other challenges in the way. Talk more specifically about what those are. Absolutely, I think you know teachers. Uh, want to do a great job. So they come in prepared, ready to teach. They, they're learning the curriculum. They're mastering their craft. They're learning how to differentiate. Uh, but at the same time, they have to learn how to develop relationships with students to foster that positive climate in the classroom, as well as being able to understand and address a, a variety of student needs that students bring to the classroom with them every day. And that often is the real challenge. And that's where it's very important to have those supportive services in place so that the teacher can teach and you have social workers and you have behavior technicians and other support people in the building who can also support students so that they can be in the classroom more ready to engage and learn. Uh, So I think that is definitely one of the big challenges for teachers, um, particularly in urban districts, juggling all of those diverse needs of students that are before you, as well as at the same time learning your craft um, and and feeling successful at what you're doing. Uh, Dr. Rich Schwab is with us as well uh, by phone, the Raymond Nieg Endowed Professor of Educational Leadership at UConn's Nieg School of Education. And Rich, you're also, as I mentioned, uh, the Commissioner for National Commission on Teaching in America's Future from 2002 to uh, last, uh, to 2017. When we look at the issue of uh, teachers leaving the profession, uh, from your work on the National Commission, why are they leaving? Well, they're leaving for all all the reasons that uh, the principal did a very nice job of describing. But they're also leaving because there's not a lot of opportunity and support for growth. Um, So you have one, you have schools that are under pressure, um, you know, just from a resources place to have a reasonable class size, to have the kind of supports that the principal, uh, our principal just described. But um, we also see limited growth for teachers further on into their career. Um, the research says that a teacher doesn't hit um, their full peak of performance till five to seven years into the profession. And if we keep turning over, um, as we've just heard, teachers in that first three years, those kids who need our best teachers um, are the ones that are, that are actually getting shortchanged by this high turn, turnover rate. So. Um, you know, long-term induction programs and career development patterns for those teachers who stay, you know, releasing them part of the day to go and coach uh, and be supportive of other uh, teachers, being engaged in the process so that they're continuously having the opportunity to grow as a professional. And again, not as an add-on at the end of the day with extra work without compensation, but actually as part of their job. I think some of those are just a few of the things that we need to do. This is where we live. Today we're talking about uh, teachers and are we investing enough in in the those who teach the next generation? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Jessica's calling from Hampton. Jessica, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just calling because I am a former special educator in the state of Connecticut. I actually am a graduate from UConn. Um, so I felt like I had a phenomenal teacher preparation program Um, But I only lasted for four years in the profession as a secondary special educator. Um, I actually came home to my husband one day after work and said, I'm either going to get fired or I'm going to quit. (laughs) Um, And it was really this kind of built up frustration with with all of the things that both guests have said already. I I wanted to make change. I wanted to be that person for my students. um, But I needed someone to be that person for me. And um, 
the the school climate and the lack of support kind of were, were frustrating. Um, so I left the classroom and am currently pursuing my PhD um, in order to work at a teaching university and and help um, build those skills, those social emotional skills in in future teachers. Because I think that's a, an enormous piece that's that's missing a lot of times is that social emotional competency of educators. Jessica, thank you for your call, and you can join the conversation as well, 860-275-7266. So Karen Lott in studio with us, former principal of Milner School in Hartford, now executive director of the Women's League Child Development Center. Do you want to respond to what Jessica was saying? Again, someone uh, who was in the profession and has now left, agreeing with what you and Rich have been saying about the lack of of supports and frustration. Definitely a very common sentiment uh, to hear um, what she shared. Teachers, in order to be successful, they really need those supports around them as well. And it's those supports that she spoke to to help them really develop that social-emotional competence uh, to deal with the multifaceted roles that teachers do play. Uh, and it, it is very often, um, it does happen uh, quite often, that teachers become frustrated um, with not feeling that they have those levels of support for their professional development, uh, supports to really kind of coach and guide them uh, in those early years of teaching. Um, and so it really falls on school administrators to really be cognizant of the needs of your new teachers uh, and how you can, even in the absence of structures that may not exist in your district, how you as a school administrator can create that in your school so that teachers feel well supported um, and that they feel that there's not only a relationship with their colleagues, but also with the administrators in the building to really help them be successful. Uh, before we take another call, uh, Rich, I wanted to go back to you in terms of, again, we're here, we keep hearing about the, the need for uh, supports in place, uh, additional time to train uh, teachers uh, before they hit that burnout level. But uh, at the same time, we know and we hear so often about uh, the budget crisis in Connecticut and less uh, municipal aid uh, to towns and then where those cuts fall. I mean, how do we get past that beyond we know that often and towns and cities rely on on uh, increases in property taxes, and there's frustration on, on the local level by uh, listeners and Connecticut residents who just don't want to have to keep paying more property taxes. I mean, what is the solution? Well, <laughs> that's the $1,000 question. Um, you know, needs are, needs are infinite and resources are finite, um, but we need – teaching is the most complex and important job in this country – we have to invest in it. It's our future. Um, we don't have economic development. We don't have great computer programmers. We don't have a great society unless we have a well-funded educational system. So um, I do think we have to, again, reinvest um, in our schools. It's, it's high need. At the same time, I think we need wraparound accountability. I think uh, teachers need to be accountable, but our administrators, as well as our school board members, you know, 360-degree cap- you know, um, responsibility and accountability to make sure we're making the best use and the best use not only of um, the resources, but research that's available on what we've learned on how schools are effective. You know, we've had um, lots of experiments over the years. We've learned a lot of things from charter schools, we've, you know, despite the political arguments involved. We've learned that having smaller class sizes does make a difference. We've learned that engaging your community in, in really positive ways makes a difference. 
we've learned that good teacher induction programs. And when I say um, there's variation across the state, we have districts in this state that are doing a fabulous job. They've made it a priority, and they support it from the superintendent on down. And I can tell you that our students vote with their feet. When they've experienced and they go into school, they're critical. They're looking at places and saying, I'm only going to go to a place where I know my chances of success are strong. And they're looking at these factors. So I, I think we just have to invest in them. I think it's a priority. Um, and Connecticut has always been a great state. Uh, we led the nation at one time when the Teacher Enhancement Act was passed back in the 90s uh, and 80s um, in a lot of these areas. But as unfortunately, as budgets have cut back, districts have to make tough decisions. But in, in the human resource development, in our people, I think, um, in our teachers especially, we can't afford to not invest in them. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Peter's calling from Sandy Hook. Peter, go ahead with your question. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Yes, uh, so my my question, it's really a statement. Uh, Connecticut has an alternate route certification program. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a professional engineer. I have 15 years of practice. I'm licensed in the state, uh, taking the professional engineering uh, examination as well as it, um, the pre-exam for that, um, the the engineering fundamentals exam, uh, graduated with a master's degree in engineering, but I'm sort of locked out of the alternate route certification program for the time being because, uh, ironically, they can't locate my SAT scores. So, so there's some issues with, the, with how the program is implemented. Yes. Uh, yeah, so without my SAT scores, without my GRE scores, I can't get into the program. And, uh, you know, those scores are 30 years old. I've tried to go to the, uh, um, to the college board. I've got, tried to go to UConn to get my scores. Uh, so it, uh, my concern is that, the, um, that people like myself who are professionals who want to become teachers can't become teachers because, uh, the, the, um, because of the requirements to get into the program. Well, Peter, thank you for your call. So this is a more a non-traditional way of becoming a teacher in the state of Connecticut. Rich, could you talk a little bit about that program? And I, I would love to. So I would encourage him to look at our teacher certification program for college graduates. In fact, we have a special STEM focus in Avery Point, and I just taught a teacher's professional course with those uh, folks down there. I had three uh, experienced engineers. I've had a um, a woman who has been an executive with IBM. Um, I've had people that have done things like offshore oceanography surveying. They had um, the opportunity to go to the uh, alternative cert program. Instead, they chose the one-year concentrated program, and uh, it's too bad. Uh, I hope one of them call in and talk about their experience. I just had my last class last week. And to the person, they said, we're so glad that we invested this year of our life, working in schools, learning the profession, learning how to approach issues like uh, challenging all of our students regarding their background, how to conduct assessment, how to plan lessons, all the important things that make teaching a profession. So um, I know it's a year, um, summer's in a year, and it's investing in yourself, but I think, um, I think that's important for the profession. Content knowledge is important, but the Learning the pedagogy, learning how to work with students, learning how to work with colleagues is another whole set of skills, I think, 
that need to be mastered before you're responsible for kids' education. I'm um, speaking of, of non-traditional ways of, of a teaching profession. You know, we all have heard of programs like Teach for America, where kids are recruited uh, and they go right from high school and college into the classroom. I mean, what is what is your take on on that kind of program? When we know that without the right kind of supports, but also education for teachers, is that setting them up for failure when they go into high need districts? Well. Um that's actually a mixed bag, a mixed bag. We see, um, we've seen some people go through Teach for America that have come out and made a significant difference, but we've also seen um, a tremendous number of those people, those students uh, and teachers coming in for a year or two and then getting out. They had never intended to invest in the profession and become uh, serious professionals. Unfortunately, many of those teachers went to some of our highest need districts. Now, did some of those do very well and very successful? Yes. But it takes years. It takes years to learn how to be a really effective teacher. And our students in our most um, challenging situations need those teachers that are well prepared when they come in. I think you're seeing a drop in uh, Teach for America and other programs uh, like that now, and people uh, moving back toward the more traditionally based uh, teacher education, realizing how complex this job is now. Karen, your experience as a principal, the Teach for America program. So as the principal of Thurman Milner School, I've had quite a bit of experience with Teach for America and met some wonderful um, young adults who had not originally pursued a career as teachers, um, went through the Teach for America program and uh, came to work at the school. Um, Well um, intentioned and high energy, uh, but a high rate of burnout. Um, So usually by the end of that second year of their commitment, Uh, Many of them would choose not to continue in the field of education, and that, in effect, created another churn of turnover um, within the school. So what was intended really uh, well-intentioned to be kind of a stabilizing factor to bring high-energy, very smart uh, individuals into schools to teach kids often created a bit of uh, a stabilization issue because as kids got to know the teachers and develop relationships Um, those would be many of the teachers who would not stay with us beyond two years. I want to take another call. Tiffany from New Haven. Tiffany, go ahead. Hi. I was wondering what your um, experiences and perceptions were about the role that the teacher evaluation system might play in discouraging um, teachers at the beginning of their profession. My husband is a teacher, and he has had a lot of experience with high variability between administrators doing the ratings as well as between different schools. And he's seen a lot of first-year teachers just rated incredibly harshly at the beginning of their career, and it's an incredibly discouraging experience. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were about that. Thank you for your call. Rich? Well, my experience, and I have done some looking into that, is you hit it on the head. There's great variation. Um, And it depends upon having an effective um, building-level leader who understands how to, that is focused on improving um, student learning. And in some situations, I think it's really important that principals and um, other teacher support people are in new teachers' classrooms and supporting them, not just looking to check off the box where they are, but helping them to understand and grow the complexity of the job. At the same time, holding them accountable. But um, again, you have really effective districts where you have you know, supports that go in, and they spend as much time on what we call formative evaluation, which is helping someone improve, 
as they do on evaluating them just whether they keep their job or not. So again, unfortunately, it's a wide variation, and that's why, as in addition to having high qualified, um, excuse me, highly rigorous uh, teacher education program, we need the same requirements for good teacher, I mean, excuse me, administrator preparation programs. Because without a good building level leader as the principal, you do not have an effective school. The research on that is really clear. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to go back to Karen Lott, who was a former principal of Milner School in Hartford for five years. You left uh, the education profession. Tell us why. Well, I really haven't left education profession. I think I, in in my thinking, I've backed up. And so I've gone to those very formative, foundational level um, uh, development of kids and their learning uh, in a preschool setting. Uh, and so my fo- my desire was to really go and work in early education and create and foster high-quality learning experiences for students there at that very foundational level so that I don't encounter or so that students don't encounter those huge gaps that I've seen um, working in urban districts where you have students who are significantly behind by second or third grade. So my reasoning was to drop back go down to that very formative level uh, where kids are really curious and excited about learning and create a great environment uh, for them and their parents and for the community where we can really anchor and foster that next generation of kids who are coming into our schools, entering into kindergarten, ready to learn uh, with those reading skills and those self-regulation skills so that they can be successful. Um, well, a lot of people, uh, when you were leaving Milner, uh, spoke highly of your leadership of that school. Now that school is going to be closing under this consolidation plan in the city of Hartford. Rich was mentioning the importance of having uh, strong leaders at schools. Uh, what do you want to see happen within the Hartford School District to encourage those leaders? I would love to see uh, the administrators who are just so incredibly hardworking and committed um, in Hartford Public Schools to really have that support, uh, that that wraparound support uh, for them to help them be the most effective administrators that they can be. Administrators are taxed with doing a multiple uh, range of things from discipline, teacher evaluation, budgeting, uh, developing relationships with the community, um, providing services and supports for parents. It's just really critical that uh, administrators have that opportunity to keep developing their skill set as things change, um, that the district is sensitive to what those additional supports are that uh, administrators need so that they really can create that excellent climate in their building that make teachers want to stay and work really hard. I do believe that you know, the role of a principal is really to motivate your teachers each and every day to create a great working environment for them um, and to work through the challenges that you definitely face um, to make that possible for teachers to feel good about coming into the building every day and knowing that even if they're going to face some difficulties, they have administrators in their building that are really going to support them and, and be problem solvers with them. We'll have to leave it there. I want to thank uh, Dr. Rich Schwab, who's been on the phone with us, uh, Professor of Educational Leadership at UConn's NEAG School of Education. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rich. Thank you so much for having me. Karen's going to stick around as we shift and talk about how state lawmakers are addressing uh, educational disparities in the state of Connecticut. You know, the session's supposed to end next Wednesday. We're going to get an update from the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education and what they'd like to see lawmakers accomplish. And you can join the conversation too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathancha. We've been talking about education today, from teacher pay to the resources in the classroom. Now, how does the way that state funds public schools impact the way school boards determine their budgets, including the supports and services they provide teachers and administrators? Joining the conversation now is Patrice McCarthy, Deputy Director and General Counsel for the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education. Patrice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, earlier, we focused in on states where uh, teachers are striking uh, to urge their states for more funding, um, not only uh, for their pay, but also in the classroom, money that was cut since the recession. How have Connecticut school districts fared? It's been challenging in Connecticut, but clearly our state legislature has always made funding for education a priority. The challenge is that in declining state resources, there are cuts being felt throughout the system. And certainly we saw that in the past budget year. There are funding needs around our major education funding grant, the education cost sharing grant, as well as needs with respect to special education funding. These are areas where costs are increasing significantly and the state's ability to support those costs has actually declined. I understand uh, last session there was a bipartisan uh, plan for a new education funding formula, a promise to boost state aid by 19 percent over the next 10 years. But because of rising costs and other uh, challenges that the state faces uh, in terms of unfunded liabilities, uh, are you uh, still optimistic that money is going to be headed down to uh, school districts, Patrice? We have to remain optimistic because every day we have to make sure that students feel that they are supported in our schools and the difficulties that occur in funding, they really are a statewide responsibility. And so we have to make sure that those conversations continue at the state level. There are also individual programs. We were, you were talking earlier about support for new teachers. Well, Connecticut has a wonderful support system, but the funds for that system were actually cut in the current year budget. Now, there, are, there is bipartisan support to restore those funds, but that's a critical issue to make sure that districts who are doing their best to make sure that teachers get the support and the assistance to make them as effective as possible, that they have the resources to make those programs effective. Uh, Brian on Twitter uh, tells us funding education with local property taxes perpetuates segregation and unequal education. Uh, We know that when uh, the state is not able to uh, give the assistance to municipalities that they may have had in previous years, uh, those cuts need to be made up somewhere. And unfortunately, in Connecticut, it always relies on the property tax. That's right. We are a state that is very reliant on our local property tax system. And We know that in most communities, taxpayers are either unwilling or unable to pay additional local taxes. So we have to look at a better overall funding structure. And what would that be? We have to have a funding system that looks, makes sure there's support for all of our students, regardless of what type of school they may be attending, their local public school, a magnet school, charter school, technical high school. We have very disparate funding systems in our state right now. And that needs an overall examination. We were also talking today about what draws uh, people, young people especially, to the the teaching profession and why they end up leaving. Anything that the legislature is doing this session to promote uh, the hiring of, of more teachers, specifically in certain districts? We are very excited about a piece of legislation that helps to grow our population of minority educators. 
we really in Connecticut, our classroom teachers and our administrators don't, for the most part, reflect the students that they are teaching. And this bill would open up some additional pathways for people that may already be working in our schools, for example, as paraprofessionals, as uh, support staff. They might already have a bachelor's degree, but just need that support to help them get the teaching credentials and experience. Alex Ben Holin from Glastonbury. Alex, have a couple of minutes. Go ahead. Hi, great show, uh, Lucy. I just want to say I've got a, a whole family of teachers: uh, my sisters, my wife, my mom. Um, and I, I think there's been a not so subtle attack on public education that we've seen from everybody, from Betsy DeVos and uh, Donald Trump down to the local levels. And um, I remember a couple of years ago that Sean Hannity ran a big program about the lavish lifestyles of teachers, which was kind of absurd if if you know how hard teachers work and how modest their incomes are. But I think it's really important that our state legislature show a true commitment to public education by putting their money where their mouth is and really funding these programs. And even if it means raising taxes uh, by making uh, our more affluent citizens pay their fair share, um, our, the quality of life in Connecticut stems a lot from the quality of education. We're, we're lucky in Glastonbury that we have a great uh, public school system. We need to spread that wealth around to other communities around the state. Thank you, Alex, for your call. He touches on a point that was uh, controversial, something that Governor Malloy had proposed last session, in getting uh, less state aid to wealthier towns and more of that to uh, urban districts. Patrice, uh, your, your reaction to that, because your association uh, deals with school boards all around the state of Connecticut. That's right. And our position is that because education is a constitutional right in Connecticut, every child, regardless of where they live, is entitled to some state support for their education. And we have to remember that even communities that are perceived as relatively wealthy do have a great variety of student needs represented in those communities. So the support for all communities obviously needs to be differentiated based on the level of need, but there should be some support for each one of our students. And we ran out of time before uh, getting an update since that state Supreme Court decision that really punts it back to the state legislature that it's up to lawmakers to figure out how to fund education more equitably, even though they have ruled it's minimally acceptable. Uh, I want to thank uh, Patrice McCarthy again. Uh, she's Deputy Director and General Counsel for Connecticut Association of Boards of Education. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I also appreciate the insight from Karen Lott, Executive Director of the Women's League Child Development Center and former principal of Milner School in Hartford. Karen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Have a great weekend.